Did anybody else feel like this last week maybe lasted around six months? Um, there's a lot happening in the world this week. And I was just thinking about, um, last week was just the Super Bowl, but it feels like that was months ago to me at this point. And um, as we think about what just unfolded this week, we had two, at least well-publicized, two mass shootings in our country. Um, we have all sorts of things happening on a global scale with the war in Gaza, with the war in Ukraine. And then yesterday, um, for those of you who are here in Nashville, I don't know if you saw the news coverage that we had actual literal Nazis marching in our street here in Nashville. And it feels like a really, I don't know about you, but it feels like the time we're living through is pretty scary. Um, but I also recognize that there are people for whom all the time has been scary. And so it's kind of a privilege to be able to say there are moments that have been scary. When for some communities in our country and in our world, it's just been one big, long, scary experience, um, feeling unseen, unheard, feeling as if the, your own government and society is out to get you and legislate you away. And so I just want to acknowledge that fear that probably resides in us right now, that we're, we're like looking at the world, looking at our community and going, what in the world are we supposed to do with all of this? And I just kept thinking about the absurdity of the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, where Mark writing at the end of the world for him and his community, writing when everything they had known had been turned upside down, the temple had been destroyed, Jerusalem had been destroyed, no doubt people they knew and loved had been killed in this war. And Mark begins by saying, I'm gonna tell you the good news of Jesus. And I just kept thinking this week, like we need good news in this moment. We need some good word, some good message, some hopeful message that reminds us that regardless of what we're facing, regardless of what's in front of us, that uh, it is not hopeless. I have, I, have fr- I, have a friend, I have several friends who, when they're feeling a little down about the state of the world, they'll text. And I had a friend who texted me last night and just said, we are doomed as a species. <laughs> like, that's, a, that's encouraging and uplifting. Um, and um, most days I can go back and say, I don't believe that's true. And I don't believe that's true. I don't believe we're doomed as a species. I, I believe that we have a great responsibility as a species, and there's work in front of us to do. And so I want to dig into a little bit about what some of that good news might look like today as we're still in the Gospel of Mark. But before I thought maybe we should just take a moment, have just a moment of quiet, a moment to center ourselves, a moment to be kind of bring ourselves present to what we're doing right now. So let's just, if you, if you are comfortable closing your eyes, if you feel like I'm sitting in a room full of people closing my eyes and that's weird, don't. Um, but whatever you need to do to kind of give yourself a little bit of space, And I just want to encourage you right now to pay attention to your breath and to try to bring your thoughts back to this moment and to feel your chest rise and fall with each breath, with each gift you receive. Every breath is a gift. Feel the weight of your body on the chair, the experience of your feet on the floor, and just be reminded that... With everything that's going on around us, we are here together right now. That we are in this space. We are, uh, whether in person or online, in this space together. God, what we need right now is we need some good news. We need some hope. We need an invitation to show up somehow 
and join in the healing of the world. May we hear that invitation today. May all of our fears and worries be met with the resiliency of hope that calls us to not turn off and tune out, but to fully engage. Give us a vision of what the world could be and give us the courage to make it so. We offer this in Jesus' name and in gratitude. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So we've been in the Gospel of Mark, and we're taking a chapter a week and essentially just doing an overview of the chapter and then asking, um, what are maybe what is something in the chapter we could focus on? We've tried to keep it to a story or a particular idea. Uh, we're going to expand that a little today because there's, there's something that happens in this chapter that I think is important to see the whole sweep of it. So just if, if you've not been with us, we've been talking about how that um, in the Gospel of Mark, it begins with Jesus announcing the kingdom of God. And when Jesus announces the kingdom of God, it is not somewhere else. It is not some when else for someone else. When Jesus announces the kingdom of God, it is right here, right now, available and accessible to each and every person. And the way we begin to see it and the way we begin to live and participate with it is we, be, we begin to change our thinking. We change our mind about how we see the world, about how we see God, how we see ourselves, how we see our neighbor, how we see our enemy. We, we recalibrate our thinking. And uh, for those of you who've been a part of maybe this for a long time, maybe, I think what we've learned is that that's not a one-time, it's not like you, how many of you take your car into the dealership or to the mechanic and they fix it? And then you're like, never have to do that again. I mean, it's a regular, like you have to, every 5,000 miles, right? You have to get that oil changed. And so it's sort of like just a regular process of recalibrating how we see the world and how we show up in the world. And Jesus has been announcing this kingdom message through stories called parables, through exorcisms. And last week, we, um, we didn't perform an exorcism last week, but we talked about one. Um, and that was, a, that was a, good, a good bit of fun. And he's also engaged in some healings. And, and he's, every, with everything he does, controversy is also building because he is presenting an alternative vision of the world when for the people in power, the current vision of the world works just fine. And when you come to a group of people who are in power and are benefiting from the dysfunction of the world and say, hey, what about a world that works for everybody? They don't, they don't greet that message with, we've been waiting for you. Please show us how this works. They, they start, start uh, hewing up a cross to put you on. And so, spoiler alert, if you're new to the Jesus story, this is headed somewhere, before it gets bright again, it's headed somewhere a little bit dark. Uh, and we'll get there as we continue through the story. So here's what happens in chapter six. Uh, Jesus is rejected in his hometown, Nazareth. He, then he commissions his 12 disciples to go and um, to exercise demons. And somebody made the joke earlier that the demons were like needed some exercise, um, but it's, it's a different kind of exorcism. And uh, thanks, I appreciate whoever finally gave in. Give in to joy, people. It's like, just give in to it. As Mary Oliver said, joy is not meant to be a crumb. Um, and then he sends them out to go carry his message and his work. And then he finds out that Herod Antipas has executed John the Baptist. If you go all the way back to chapter one, it was Jesus was baptized by John, but it was when John was arrested that Jesus launched his public activity. And his message was a little different than John's. So there was something about John being arrested that for Jesus was like the moment, like I know this is my moment. And I just imagine when he finds out John has been killed, Jesus has to begin to realize that he's on a clock here, that, that um, those in power 
are not abiding any sort of message about running the world differently because John had a message about running the world differently. The 12 return from doing the work they did to celebrate. Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus. Jesus walks on water. And then Jesus does some more healing. So this is the overview of the chapter. I have to be honest, as I was sitting down this week trying to figure out like, What's the story that we should focus on? I realized there isn't a story we should focus on. There are at least three. So I hope you don't have plans. We're going to be here. I'm kidding. We're going to do this as quickly as possible. But there are three stories that if you begin to see the thread that runs through all of them, we'll, we'll begin to see what maybe Mark is trying to do in this particular series of stories. And I just want to, I'll give you on the front end, I think Mark 6, if we were to say, what's the theme of the whole chapter? I think the theme of the whole chapter is collaboration and cooperation. I think this is a chapter inviting us to see what is possible if we choose to participate in the healing of the world. If we show up not only in word, but if we show up in deed. And I want to begin in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus goes to his hometown um, anybody in here have a weird relationship with your hometown? Yeah, me too. I realized um, I spent roughly 18 years trying to get the heck out of there. I grew up in a small town in Appalachia, and my entire life going to 18 was like, how fast can I get out? Um, and I felt like the whole time my hometown was trying to hang on to me a little bit. Anybody else have that feeling like you're trying to get out and they're trying to hold on to you? What's been an interesting, uh, unexpected flip is the older I get, the more I feel like I, I miss my hometown and I miss that, that connection. And I feel like now they're not really interested um, and um, so I don't know if you've been around for Grace Point for a few years, you may know this, but when I was, um, I started preaching when I was in my mid to late teens. I don't know why anybody let me or listened to me. I still am confused about why you're here, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was ordained, which is this process where um, it was a Southern Baptist church that I gotten called to preach in. And it's this process where they bring you up and they ask you a bunch of questions and then they pray for you and now you're official. Um, and I found out during the course of the pandemic that I, my theology has sh shifted, um, right? During the course of the pandemic, I got a letter in the mail from my home church with names I knew um, that they had had a church-wide business meeting where they had publicly voted to break all relationship with me and to rescind my ordination. Now, I didn't even think my ordination counted anymore, right? Like I was doing things that Southern Baptists were not cool with. I didn't assume it counted, but there was something about getting that in the mail with names I knew and had done ministry with or people that I had actually baptized back in the late 90s. And just seeing that sort of like, don't call us sort of situation um, that I now found myself in. And so I've been back twice since then to my hometown. And it was really strange to like be and, and to like feel so, such a connection to the hills and the connection to the pepperoni rolls and a connection to the place. Um, but to feel like, that, like, like I wanted it, but it didn't want me anymore. And I don't know what to do about that. It's, this is now my therapy session. It's just a weird sort of experience. And some of you know what that's like because you were honest about who you were or your faith shifted or your politics shifted, which usually accompanies a faith shift. And all this stuff happened and you're no longer the person you used to be. You're becoming someone else, someone which is the, how life works. But the people who knew you then don't recognize you now. And that's exactly the situation Jesus finds himself in. He goes to the synagogue in his hometown and he starts to teach and everybody's astounded. And they said, 
Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? So it sounds a little bit like they're, they're into this, right? Like, look at, this is our hometown boy. Where did he get all this? He's, he's not even been to the big city yet. Jesus' ministry in the beginning was situated in rural Galilee, where he was from. He, he didn't go to Jerusalem until the week he died. Wow. Look at him and all the stuff he's saying. Look at what he's doing in these other villages. Look at the, uh, the stir he's created. He's making some people angry. And then notice what they say next. Is this not the carpenter? And what's interesting, when Matthew tells this story, he changes it to, isn't this the son of the carpenter? But we don't get that here. We get, isn't this the carpenter? Now, carpenter, when you think, I think carpenter, I think of somebody who like makes a deck on your house or helps frame your house, or does things with wood. But in Greek, it's the word tectone, and it really means more like a craftsman. So it could be a stonemason, anybody who has some sort of specialized skill. Isn't this, isn't this the tectone? Isn't this the, like, didn't he do the brick on Larry's house? Like, we, we know this guy. He was just here. He worked in the village around all of us. Then they say this, isn't he the son of Mary? the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, aren't his sisters here? Like, we know his family. And this idea, isn't this the son of Mary, would actually be a little bit of a slur intended to bring Jesus down a couple of pegs because in a patriarchal society, you would be the son of, and you would use the father's name, but to uh, say the son of Mary, this suggests some sort of illegit illegitimacy around Jesus' paternity, right? So this is sort of like, because doesn't everybody in your hometown know the exact button to push? You haven't seen them for 30 years, and that person still remembers. Well, when you were in high school, yes. oh Ethel, let it go. Like, <laughs> y'all still talking about this. Yes. When I was in high school, that happened. But high school was a long time ago. But everybody in your hometown remembers the story, right? It follows you around. People are on Facebook. They know. Isn't this the son of Mary? Isn't this his family? Like, who is he? Do you get that vibe that's creeping in? Who's this guy to be saying anything like this? Who's this guy to think he's leading or representing a movement like this? And they took offense at him. Literally, in Greek, they stumbled over him. They couldn't handle it. And Jesus responded, prophets are not without honor except in their hometown among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there except he laid his hand on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. I want to focus on that line. He could do no deed of power. Do you get what that's saying? Jesus has been walking around Galilee going, boom, and things happen. And he's in his hometown with people he went to high school with. And he can't, it's like nothing, nothing, nothing. Now, other gospels follow Mark, but take this out because they're super uncomfortable with Jesus whose powers don't work. But I think that this is actually the point. I think it's instructive. I think the point is this. What Jesus is doing, the mission of the kingdom of God, is not a solo project. It is a collaborative project. And that for Jesus to do the thing he's doing elsewhere, his hometown has to be open to it. 
They have to be willing to open their hearts to it. They have to be willing to engage it. They have to be willing to participate in it. And because they refuse to engage, this whole thing Jesus is doing, the kingdom of God movement, doesn't come to Nazareth. Because the kingdom of God is not a, from outside of this world, imposed on us. The kingdom of God is not, here it comes, ready or not. The kingdom of God is, here it comes, if you want it. Here it comes. I'm remembering the John Lennon lyric, war is over if you want it. Right? If you want it to be over, it's, it can be over. If you want the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, it can happen. But it cannot happen without our collaboration, without our participation, and without our partnership. Jesus left Nazareth. And can you imagine, enter into this story metaphorically with me. Can you imagine people saying, like, I knew he wasn't all that. He can't even, Bob has eight demons and he didn't even touch him. I'm trying to teach me too. Right? There's this thing that's happening here that only works if there's more than one person carrying the load. And so after this, Jesus then decides it's time to expand the movement. This is not, this is, this is not um, a monopoly, it's a franchise. We're gonna send this. And so he commissions his disciples to go and continue his work in the villages uh, of Galilee. And he, said he empowers them to cast out demons. He empowers them to heal. He empowers them to liberate. This is a healing liberation mission. And he tells them to go and to preach and teach and to call people to a different way of thinking. Now, he doesn't just do that. He tells them what to pack, which leads me to a couple questions. How many people in this room, if you know you have a trip coming up in July, you're already making a packing list and you'll pack in May just in case something happens. How many of you are that person? Okay, we have like three of you, four of you in the room. Like you're, there's almost a sense of like, I, if I don't do this now, I'm not gonna be able to rest till July, right? Like I need to know where it's going. That's not me. How many of you are, you realize at night before bed that you're leaving tomorrow at 9 a.m. and you're, you just start throwing things in a bag. Doesn't even matter what the bag is. It could be a Walmart bag. You're just throwing things in a bag, right? That's, that's kind of me. I hate packing. I hate packing. I always forget something. If I made a list, probably wouldn't happen, but I always forget something. Uh, and I just find the whole process. The only thing I dislike more than packing for a trip is unpacking from a trip. Because when I have to repack with all the dirty clothes and stuff at the hotel, I promise you, there is no method. There is only madness. I'm just cramming things in. So this past year, I was on a book tour, and I, had, I was on the airplane several times going to places, and I decided, I fly southwest, and I decided I don't want to check a bag the entire time. Because you know what happens when you check bags. There is always the chance it is going to be lost and you're going to arrive at your destination with nothing, which creates a problem. Then there's the other piece of it where you, you have to go and wait by that conveyor belt for that light to go off and then that and then it starts to move and you stand there and finally here come the bags and other people are getting theirs and you still don't see yours and it's like not being picked for the team all over again. You're just waiting, waiting, <laughs> waiting, waiting and it's taking all the time. I just decided I'm not doing it. And so what I did for this trip is I just packed everything clothes-wise in a duffel bag. If it couldn't go in the duffel bag, I didn't need it. And I put books in a suitcase and I just 
I never, y'all, I won. I never checked a single bag. But there were times I was at the gate and they would make that announcement where the person making the announcement stares you down. They're like, if you have more than one bag, we need you to check it, to consider checking it because it's a crowded flight. I never made eye contact. (laughs) Not this time. Normally I would be, pull my heartstrings. I want to be a helper. This time I was like, there's no chance in heaven or anywhere else I am checking this bag. Wanda, it's not happening. And I just didn't check a single bag. When Jesus' disciples are about to leave for this journey, he gives them a sort of a list of things that they can take with them. I want you to notice what they can take in Mark and what they can't take. So he ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. You want to talk about traveling light? You can wear sandals. You can take a stick. That's it. Now Matthew changes it. In Matthew, Jesus says, don't take anything. No sandals, no stick. So Matthew's like, Mark didn't, Mark didn't lay down the gauntlet. I want to really see who wants it. You can't take anything. I mean, sandals and a stick are the basic travel, like to help you with travel, right? So you aren't walking barefoot. The stick's helpful. If you're tired, it's also helpful if you're being attacked, right? It's, it's practical. And Jesus is like, you can take those couple things here, but you can't take any money Don't take two tunics because here they would have taken, at night they would have taken the second one and used it as a blanket. So don't take a blanket. Don't take a pillow. Not one of those cool neck pillows that help you like really rest on the airplane. Don't take anything. I want you to go on this journey and I want you to be broke. And they're like, oh, cool. We'll just take Apple Pay. And he's like, no, 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 you missed the point. Take no money. And delayed reaction. I love it. And then he says this. Wherever, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. In Matthew, he adds this little detail where Jesus says, for the people who don't listen, who don't show hospitality, who reject you, it would be better to be Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than to be these communities. And here's what he means by that. He means he's connecting the story of Sodom and Gomorrah to refusing to be hospitable. So when people like, Jesus never talks about, actually, Jesus talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's not the way it's been used in really bad biblical exegesis for hundreds of years. He connects it to refusing to practice hospitality to strangers, refusing to house, feed, and shelter people who needed it. What's interesting is when he tells them what to pack, he tells them don't take anything. You are going to be fully dependent on the hospitality of other people. It's a good thing Jesus did not send them to the holler that I grew up in. About once a year in my holler, we would get missionaries. As a kid, I had no idea what religion they were from. Now, looking back, I think they were probably Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. But I didn't know, here's how you knew it would happen. You would see them walking up the holler, and then somebody in my house would yell, it's the missionaries, everybody hide. (laughs) And we would hide. Vivid memories of being under my bed as they knocked on the door. (laughs) It's like Jurassic Park when the the cup of water starts like rippling. 
it's the missionaries. And you go hide. For the longest time, I thought they had like some sixth sense, like x-ray vision or heat vision or something that they would know we were home and they would just wait us out if we didn't hide. Um, But I remember like it takes a lot of energy to do that kind of work, right? To like door to door and just be rejected again and again in most situations. That's not really the kind, like Jesus didn't send them and they didn't go door to door and say, can we tell you about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Not not the move. They went door to door and said, the kingdom of God is here. Do you wanna help bring it into reality? And in order to do that, Jesus is giving them the paradigm. You have to Give and receive hospitality to make the kingdom visible. How's the kingdom visible? Oh, we come to this town and they give us shelter and food and we help liberate and heal them. It's a giving and receiving relationship. People giving, people receiving, both ways. I, I'll tell you this, anybody else do this? Like if somebody does something nice for you, like they buy you lunch or coffee or just, like you try to pay them back so fast that it would make your head spin. Like you take somebody to lunch before you leave the parking lot, you're like, now next week I'm taking you to lunch and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, right? This idea of receiving is hard for some of us. The idea of actually just being on the benefiting end of somebody else's generosity. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, you have to learn to receive. And you have to learn to give. And you have to learn to create communities of people who are giving and receiving together giving and receiving hospitality, generosity, liberation, healing, and that's how the kingdom comes. That's how the kingdom comes to little random rural villages in the backwater of Galilee. Not from some self-imposed Independence Day sort of like spacecraft arrival, but through actual human beings loving and caring and being generous with one another. Hospitality isn't like this add-on, like we have the right doctrine, but we're not really hospitable. Jesus said, actually, if you're not being hospitable, you don't have right doctrine because this is central to the kingdom movement as Jesus understands it. These disciples come back and Jesus gets with them and they go across the lake and they're trying to get some time to recover. And then they land on the other side of the lake and there's a massive crowd and Jesus feels for them. He feels compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so he just starts teaching. Eventually it gets late and his disciples come to him and they say, this place is deserted and the hour is late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. Practical. Like Jesus, they're hungry, send them away. Now what this doesn't take into account is in Jesus' world, first century Palestine, If you have the time to follow around an itinerant teacher, what that means is you aren't working family land, so you've probably been displaced, and you're not a working artisan, which means you can't get work. Which means the idea of telling them, go into the surrounding villages and buy your own food, it's almost a slap in the face. It's let them eat cake, right? And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, well, why don't y'all feed them? I mean, that's, that's my translation. Why don't y'all feed them? And the disciples are like, it would take 200 days wages to even give everybody a bite. And then Jesus has the disciples organize them in groups. And he says, what do we got? And they bring like a number three from Long John Silver's. <laughs> Jesus gives thanks and they pass it out. Everybody has plenty to eat and there are 12 basketfuls left over. 
Here's a detail I missed until several years ago. Um, I, I'd done a sermon on this story at the church I pastored in Kentucky, and we were having some conversation about it at the end. And a woman in the community raised her hand. She said, I just recently saw something on this where that in Jesus' day, people would carry a basket of food with them if they, were go- you know, if they could, if they were going to be on a journey. That way they would have something to eat because, you know, there's not always food available and you may not have the money for it. So you, you bring, you know, like a little basket of, of lunch. How many disciples were there? How many basketfuls left over? The disciples had baskets. They had baskets of food. And they're saying to Jesus, send these people away so they can go buy something to eat. And Jesus is like, what do you got? And they go find somebody else's lunch. (laughs) You're like, well, this kid's got this. All the while, they're holding on to, they did not learn the lesson they just had, they, they just experienced. They went into people's homes. They ate. They slept safely. They were cared for with hospitality. And now they get the opportunity to pay it forward and be hospitable to other people. And they're like, we should send them away. That's good. You know, it's getting late and they're hungry. And Jesus teaches them, no, 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 no. Y'all, if we organize ourselves in groups and everybody opens their basket. Everybody gets enough food to eat. If everybody just, this is why the early church, their gatherings were not this. They didn't come to hear a person talk. They didn't come to just sing some songs. They maybe did some of that, but the centerpiece of their gathering was not just like a little bit of bread and a little sip of grape juice. It was a Eucharist meal where everybody bought what, brought what they could. And I imagine for some people in the community, those sharing meals were the best thing they had and the most food they had for the entire week. The early church adopted my grandmother's principle, which was nobody leaves her house hungry. And that's what the early, the early Jesus movement was so centered on food because daily bread was the concern. And Jesus is trying to teach them, if we work together, yeah, separately, there are a lot of mountains in front of us that can't be moved. Separately, there are a lot of fires that can't be put out. But if we organize ourselves, and if we join together, and if we choose to collaborate and participate, maybe it's possible for the kingdom to come in this village, and then that village, in this house, and then that house. Maybe that's possible. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to organize and how to bring the kingdom in a practical way. How do you measure the arrival of the kingdom of God? Full bellies, housed people. So the lesson a Christian nation is still not learned. Christian nation. That is the work of the kingdom of God. So a few takeaways before we wrap up. Um, The world will not change by our just sitting by waiting for the world to change. The world won't change because we just sit around and wish it was different. That's not how the world changes. The kingdom of God is a reality that only impacts the world only when we choose the path of collaboration and participation with it. When will the kingdom come? When we choose. When we say so when we do something differently. 
And the church has unfortunately become primarily like an entertainment venue. Like we, we big, build big, build big, I'm speaking in tongues. We build big buildings and have cool light shows and attract masses of people and assume that the point of all of this is just this, that we all get together in the same place and we all have a, like a, a cheerlead moment and then we go about our real lives, which is all about the other stuff. And can we just be honest, too often, when you see, let's just be honest, take, take, take this community and what you know about it out of it. When you see groups of Christians getting together and working together, do you feel good about that or does it make you worry about what's next? <laughs> like when I see Christians get together, like we've got a plan for the world, it usually involves taking away somebody's rights. It usually involves taking away somebody's access to health care and education. It usually looks like drumming up support for a war. Or new ways to destroy the planet. New ways to marginalize and exclude people who are different in their eyes. I think for lots of people in the world who aren't Christian, when they see Christians organizing, they're like, what's next? What are they going to do? How, how are they going to take away rights next? When ideally... If people saw Christians organizing, it should be somebody's about to be liberated, somebody's about to be healed, somebody's world is about to get better. That should be the center of what we're up to in the world. And so I think a community like ours, a community that is local, Nashville, but also uh, national in the U.S. and global around the world. We have friends in Australia who, when they watch this, it's going to be Monday morning for them and we'll be asleep. When you think about our community, like how do we work together? How do we collaborate and participate and partner to bring liberation and healing to our own communities, wherever, whatever your zip code is? How do we work together and inspire and educate and encourage one another to do the practical work of bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? I think conversations are really important. I think we could, we, and I love the conversations. We need to keep having them. That's how you learn. That's how you're educated. But there also has to be action. That has to be showing up in the world, boots on the ground, doing real practical things in the world. So I want to share, as we wrap up, two opportunities coming up. One is for education, and uh, one is for action, okay? Now, so the first one, this will be in the newsletter this week. On February 27th from 8 to 10.30 p.m. Central Time, because it's happening in Pacific Time, um, and it is online, there's a teach-in happening that's unpacking the relationship between Christianity and what's happening in Gaza. Um, because there's a direct relationship between Christianity and the genocide that's happening in Gaza. There's a direct relationship. Christianity has uh, been used as uh, an igniter in an already tense re region. And we need to know how has the Christian tradition been used to create problems in the world so that we can de-weaponize it and make sure that we're not part of the problem. Are you with me? So if you're interested in Gaza, if you're interested in what's happening and how Christianity has played a role in that, um, that's happening on the 27th. And then Saturday, March 2nd, 10 a.m., we're meeting here in Nashville at McKendree United Methodist Church, um, and we're going to join the Poor People's Campaign for a march to, to go demand uh, fair wages, to demand good public education, to demand meaningful common-sense gun reform, you know, the stuff that basic civilized kind, compassionate societies should be doing. And so that's an opportunity for education. That's an opportunity for action. And I hope you'll consider joining us because there's something about learning together and then acting together. And I know, are we going to, do you think everybody in the legislature on that Saturday is going to go like, oh my gosh, what have we been doing? 
No, but we'll just keep showing up. Right? Uh, injustice depends on our fatigue. And we may need to tag in and out. Everybody can't do everything. But it is our calling, I think, to not only talk about really good, meaningful ideas, but to then put boots on the ground and actually do good, meaningful work in the world. Another way to do that is pick up one of those bags that have been made for our unhoused uh, friends in our community and to pass those out. There are really practical ways to bring the kingdom, maybe not to the entire state, or the entire, but maybe to that one person. And I, I really just believe in the domino effect. And I believe it's possible. The work in front of us is big. It's mountainous. Alone, it feels impossible. But if we join together as community, as people who understand the kingdom comes in this giving and receiving and this hospitality and this generosity, I think anything's possible. Are you with me? Yes. Friends, our species is not doomed unless we decide we're doomed. We can do this. We can change history together.